0: please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to finish part 2 of what we began last week in looking at verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 3. Let me read those first six verses to remind us of Paul's words. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, The prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, that by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. To be genuinely Christian means that you are thoroughly biblical. And to be thoroughly biblical means to be convinced that the Bible is God's word, God's revelation to mankind. If God has spoken, which we believe He has done here at Mission Road Bible Church, if God has spoken to us in Scripture, in the Bible, we must be consistent and mindful in our implications and applications of that divine act. If this book is God's Word, that's a life changer. That's a game changer. The Bible, as God's Word, has certain essential characteristics, characteristics, certain essential attributes. For example, the Bible is inspired. That means it's breathed out by God, spirated by God through the writers, the human writers in Scripture. They wrote on his behalf. It's God's very breath. It's inerrant, which is without errors in the original documents, and the copies we have enable us to discern from the original text what the original texts were. It's infallible. That means it's unfailing in its message, past, present, through all generations. It's authoritative. As God's very word and words, the Bible is authoritative in all that it says and binding on his created beings. It's clear. The theological word is perspicuous, the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. It can be understood by anyone and clear enough to be accepted as God's divine word. It's necessary. Without God's word, we would have no way to know God and no way to find the way to heaven. And it's sufficient. The Scriptures provide all that we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1, verses 2-3 to tell us the very thing. Now the church has battled to protect these attributes of Scripture in every generation since the Bible came together. Attacks on God's Word are always aiming themselves at this precious book And they aim at one or more of these attributes. In fact, every generation has probably had to wrestle with all of these attributes of Scripture being attacked by by its enemies. What's sad, though, is in our generation, some of these attributes are attacked from from within, from well-meaning professors of Christ. I've watched the attacks on God's Word in my ministry Sometimes multiple at a time, sometimes one at a time. I remember watching, I was a young man in the late 70s, the, the attack on the inerrancy of Scripture, reading about that, and theologians from around the globe assembled in Chicago and developed what now we know as the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, where they, they fought back and said, no, God's Word is inerrant, and this is why we believe that, and these are the implications of that. But here's an important question for, I, want, I want us to think about and consider what if we were to have lunch today and I were to ask you what what do you think the primary attack on God's word in our generation is from unbelievers from Satan what is the primary attack on God's word inspiration inerrancy infallibility authority clarity necessity Well, all of them are certainly in play at some level, but I think there's one attribute of Scripture that's confronted more in our day than any other. And unfortunately, this attack survives and thrives inside many churches. And it can survive and thrive in your heart unless you're careful. The attribute of Scripture that I think is under most attack is Sufficiency. This attack is subtle and it's sneaky. The danger comes in the form of what we call integrationism. Now, by integrationism, I mean you take any worldview and you integrate that with a biblical worldview and you come out with this hybrid worldview that you think answers all the questions and checks all the boxes, but it's done nothing except undermine the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. For example, the social sciences have been integrated with Scripture. Psychology's view of man, sociology's view of man, just read the headlines and you know that that's happening in our world and people are importing that along with their theology into their worldview. And pundits' opinions become equal to Scripture's statements. Political ideologies, patriotism, and constitutionalism can sneak in when we think, We have the authority of the Bible and the Constitution. And then there's subjectivism. This is the notion that God continues to speak today outside and after His Word, specifically through what many call charismatic gifts of knowledge and prophecy and of tongues. Here's the central issue. The Bible is only sufficient if it's complete. If we take as a presupposition that God still speaks outside of the covers of our Bibles, we have rendered our Bibles by definition insufficient. Now, be careful going too far with that. That doesn't mean that God doesn't, talk to us today. I I, I hope I hear His voice every day through His Word and through the promptings of my conscience. But, but, But it's always aligned with and always informed by and always in check with the Scriptures. The Bible is only sufficient if it's complete. By definition, if it's not complete, then what we hold is not sufficient. Therefore, God continues to speak. Let me say it another way. If God is still speaking in addition to Scripture, then we have no reason to believe that Scripture is sufficient because more needs to be said and can be said outside of the covers of your Bible. That is a dangerous, dangerous proposition. So as we begin to look into this doctrine in our passage, we started it last week. This is is at the heart of what Paul is talking about is what God has said, how he has said it, and to whom he said it through, and is he finished speaking in Scripture? Last week, we noted that Paul uses this term called mystery or mysterion in the Greek. Now, it's different than our use of mystery. This is review, but let me just remind you that when we think of mystery, our minds go to Agatha Christie or the Hardy Boys or, or Nancy Drew, or if you have a mind like mine, it goes to... Scooby-Doo. So it's like a puzzle to be solved, a mystery to be figured out. You have the clues, and with enough ingenuity, you can put all the clues together and figure it out. That's not what the Greek term mystery means. That is not what Paul's implying with this idea of mystery. Paul's use of mystery, as we'll see in a moment, is... New revelation, we call it New Testament revelation that comes after the Old Testament that was not revealed there, but is new in the new covenant in the gospel for us to understand. We began looking at that last week and we didn't get finished, so we're going to review and pick it up and go a little bit deeper into why we believe and why it's important that we understand that the Bible is God's complete word and we need to look Anywhere else, for what God thinks, what God says, what God is about. We started out by looking at our outline, two New Testament revelations about God's grace. It's really about God's undeserved favor that he bestows on people. And he does that in just countless ways. He does so in the gospel, which has been Paul's um, emphasis since chapter 1 of Ephesians. But he also reveals his grace in giving us his word. We know who he is and what He expects. We're not waking up every morning and wondering if God is some capricious deity who's unpredictable, who's unknowable, who's, who's possibly changeable. No, we have His Word. We looked first of all in verses 1 and 2. God's grace is a shared stewardship. God's grace, remember, His undeserved favor, what He gives us that we don't deserve, that we should not expect, but His His unspeakable kindness gives us anyway. Verse 1, for this reason, he's talking about the Jew-Gentiles coming together. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. We broke that down two weeks ago by itself. We looked at it again last week. It is completely counterintuitive and it's completely unnatural that Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus because he was actually arrested and he's a prisoner in Rome under Nero, who would execute him. Paul saw through the human means, he saw through the circumstances to God's invisible hand and saw God. Oh, there is is just unspeakable insight in that for you and me. If we can see, if we can believe, if we can trust that God never leaves us nor forsakes us, that he'll be with us always to the end of the age, that he loves us and cares for us, that everything that happens in and around us in our circumstances, none of that, none of that is beyond his control that escapes his notice, that is outside of his love. Paul saw through horrific circumstances and believed God was a part of it. He says, I'm there for the sake of the Gentiles. We noticed last week that it was the more he preached to the Gentiles, the more he preached about the Gentiles, the more he got in trouble with the Jews, and the Jews were the ones who had him arrested and ultimately appealing to Rome, and that's why he's in prison. Verse 2, if indeed you have heard of, I love this phrase, the stewardship, the gift, the caretaking of God's grace, which was given to me for you, Paul saw God saw God's grace as a gift given to him for which He was a caretaker, a steward, an overseer that he then dispensed to others. And he expects you and me to do the same thing. In other words, we can tell people that God is righteously and rightfully angry with people because of their sin, but if you'll believe the gospel, He will give you grace, what you don't deserve. He will give you mercy holding back his wrath he's been talking about that for two chapters for the sake of the gentiles he was given the stewardship of God's grace that's shorthand for the gospel paul was overwhelmed by grace we we looked at that last week chapter 1 verses 2 to 8 chapter 2 verses 4 to 9 grace grace by grace we have been saved i would beg you we sing about it so much we talk about it so often we read about it with such frequency that would just kind of scan our mind across and grace to you and peace and stop and think about the fact that we don't deserve God's favor, the kindness of his intentional will expressed to us. We don't deserve it, but grace he gives us what we don't deserve. That, Paul never escaped the gravity of that theological notion. It was his privilege for him to carry God's grace to non-Jews, which was incredible because he wanted to go to the Jews. Now, we find out in Galatians, Peter was sent to the Jews, Paul was sent to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Even though Paul really wanted to go to the Jews, Romans chapter 10, he talks about, I love my countrymen, I want them to know for the Jews, the, the people I love so much. And he did preach a lot to the Jews. It just never worked out well for him. They beat him up for it. They kicked him out of the synagogue. They drug him out of Derby and Lystra, left him in a ditch, beaten so bad they thought he was dead. His faithfulness to his stewardship landed him in prison in this epistle where he had time to pray and time to write, an opportunity to evangelize Roman soldiers who were holding him at sword point. What... What a gift perspective is. And Paul had it. That led us to our second New Testament revelation about God's grace. And we'll understand why this is New Testament revelation as we get into this point. God's grace is a revealed mystery. God's grace is a revealed mystery. Now, again, this section will have four sub points. We looked at two of them last week and we'll we'll review those and look at the final two today. First, God's mystery is disclosed by New Testament revelation. Why do we say it's New Testament revelation? This says nothing about the New Testament. Look closer and I think you'll see it. By revelation, verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, which I wrote in brief. Compare that to verse 5. In other generations, this was not made known to the sons of men. Other generations is the Old Testament. But it's now been revealed to His holy apostles and to His prophets in the Spirit. This is new revelation. We we call it New Testament revelation. That's why we have the book of Ephesians. That's why we have all of the 27 letters of the uh, books of the New Testament. Again... We can mistake Paul's meaning here if we import our understanding of what mystery is into this passage. By revelation, there was made known to me the mystery. Not Sherlock Holmes, not Agatha Christie or Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys or Scooby-Doo. We learned that Paul's, we looked at this last week, Paul's use of mystery is something unknown in the Old Testament, but now known in new revelation in the New Testament. In the time of Christ and the apostles, and the prophets. For example, if you look back to chapter one, he uses mystery as the summing up of all things now and in the future in Christ. That the Jewish Messiah would be the king of the universe and reign now in our hearts and one day in a dispensation or administration, a millennial reign. We also learn in chapter five, Paul uses mystery, he says, that it's a mystery that the gospel illustrates marriage and marriage illustrates the gospel. We'll we'll talk about this when we get there. It's a reciprocating analogy. They both illustrate the other. That was a mystery unknown. You can't find anything about that in the Old Testament. And then we looked at Colossians chapter 2, where Paul says the ultimate mystery is Jesus of Nazareth himself. Oh, we knew from the Old Testament there was a Messiah coming. We knew even from Isaiah 53 that there would be a sacrifice made. But who he is, where he lived, that he would grow up in relative obscurity in Nazareth? Remember what was said? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That he would be born in Bethlehem, living in relative obscurity till he was three decades old and then having his ministry in three years? That, that wasn't revealed in the Older Testament. But here in chapter 3, he takes a different angle on this mystery, something unknown but now known. It's a nuance of God's mystery that's important for us to understand in our ecclesiology, our understanding of the doctrine of the church. It's mysterion in the Greek, something not known beforehand but revealed now by revelation. So Paul uses mysterion here to describe something new that was unknown before the coming of Christ but now is fully known by new or New Testament revelation. So Paul uses this word revelation revealed twice in this passage. That's a very precious term to him. By revelation, he means God's word. So now he says that God has revealed new revelation, his word in new content to him. I think this is so difficult for us to appreciate because the nuance that he's going to highlight here is the Jew-Gentile combination. And this was, this was precious and priceless to Paul and unexpected. Oh, sure, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 all point to the fact that Abraham's seed would bless the nations. But up until the time of Paul's writing, the idea was that a true Jew would convert Gentiles to be worshipers of God by becoming Jewish. That was the way the plan worked in the Older Testament. Not here. This is different. This is new. Because here, we'll see down in verse 6, that the Gentiles and the Jews come together to be no longer Jews and no longer Gentiles, but Christians to be one new humanity. People who should have and could have and did hate each other set aside cultural, religious differences, set aside their their backgrounds, set aside their worship, their diets. They set aside it all to be one with each other. Christ creates a new humanity. How does this come about? Well, we discussed this from chapter two. This principle applies to us at many levels. Nothing culturally should ever cause us to have division with people within our church body. And there are so many, so many temptations to divide over in our day. Be diligent and careful. At the end of the verse, he says, of which I wrote to you in brief. I think he's just talking about chapter two, verses 11 to 22, a portion of this passage that he's, uh, the, the, there's no chapter division in the original. So he said, I just wrote to you briefly about this. Now I'm going to explain it a little bit more. And the key to note here is that Paul was given this understanding about God's mystery through direct new revelation. So that's what he says specifically and explicitly in verse 3, but it's also implied in the idea of mystery, and those come together to help us understand. This was not in the Old Testament. It was new information that God disclosed to the apostles and to the prophets in New Testament times. More on that in verse five. Don Carson helps us out here. He says, quote, Paul holds that several elements in the gospel and even the gospel itself were hidden in the past and have only now been revealed in the coming of Christ. They constitute a mystery, something that neither Jew or Gentile had foreseen. And if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He's right. Secondly, we looked at God's mystery is established by New Testament revelation. It's given credential. How can we know that this is, this is new and revelation, and, and why should we believe you? Paul says, verse 4, By referring to this revelation, this Fact that God had revealed this new mystery to him by referring to this when you read you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ he's going to read especially the Jews would say what we're, we're not Jewish anymore we're, we're, the Gentiles are saying we don't have to be Jews we're, we're not pagans anymore this This was the first great challenge of the church. Remember, Paul goes on his missionary journeys. He's called by God to preach to the Gentiles. He comes back to give a report to the believers in Acts chapter 15. And they had heartburn over Gentiles becoming saved and thought the Gentiles, to be truly converted, needed to become Jewish. Be circumcised. And there was a, the first council of the church, the Jerusalem council, was to settle the fact that no, that's not the case. This actually was a part of a, previously a debate between Peter and Paul in Galatians chapter 2, right? Where Paul had to publicly rebuke Peter that you don't have to make people Jewish to make them Christians. This oneness, this solidarity was going to be so important to the founding of the church. They didn't need to Judaize Christianity, but to see Christianity was the fulfillment of Judaism. It was a new humanity that God was and is creating in its glorious this should, by the way, help us to appreciate, cherish, and love the gospel that brings us close to those that we would have otherwise had no reason to fellowship with. I mean, when people see us from outside of our church body, they should walk in and say, "These one of these things is not like the other. It doesn't make any sense. You have wealthy. You have less wealthy. You have tall. You have short. You have every race. You, you, you have uh, socioeconomic differences, and yet... They're all together? Why? Because we all have one Lord. This is pretty important to Paul. Look over at chapter 4 for a minute. After explaining all this, this will show you we're not going to let go of this for a few sermons here. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, chapter 4, verse 1, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That wouldn't make sense unless giving tolerance was unnatural. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in our, our glue, our bond of peace. There is, listen to the numbers, one body and one spirit, just as also you were called into the one hope of your calling and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. one. Solidarity. That's a mystery that he's revealing. We'll get to that more the end of chapter 3 and through chapter 4. It's actually going to extend through all six chapters, frankly. That leads us to where we want to dive in a little bit deeper today. Number letter C, or the 3rd subpoint: God's mystery is disclosed by, discovered rather, by New Testament revelation. How do we know this? How do we discover it? Well, by New Testament revelation. He talks about this mystery which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Now, I want to do... The sandwich, I want to do the bread and then we'll do the meat in the middle. Let's listen do the, the, both sides. First of all, this was not known in the Old Testament. That's what that first phrase means. Secondly, it was known through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspires 2 Peter, 1 Peter. Um, 2 Timothy tells us, inspired these men to write on behalf of God. Well, Verse 5 is one of the most important verses in your New Testament to explain why and how you have a New Testament. As we've been studying the new insight that Paul talks about in verse 3, he explains now where he got it in verse 5 through the gospel, is that Gentiles could approach the God of Israel as believers in Christ. They no longer needed to become Jewish to become close to God, to draw near to Him. Jew and Gentile alike could approach God equally on this new basis. He's going to explain that further in verse 6. This was not known to the Old Testament prophets or the Old Testament people of God or the Jews. The idea was for them to proselytize others to become Jewish with them. But in the church, God, as we've said over and over for two chapters now, is creating a new man, a new humanity that was not Jew or Gentile, but Christian and Paul gives a brief word on how this happened. Look how he uses this <laughs> these two descriptions, his gods holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Holy typically means morally pure and it does. It does mean that here, but holy also means separate to be set aside. I think here is more the nuance of he set aside these apostles, he set aside these prophets for a specific purpose look back to chapter 2 verse 20 having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone a few weeks ago when we looked at i looked at that i, I, I think i said and I, I said it mistakenly i think i said that that the foundation of the apostles and prophets is the old testament new testament these prophets are not old testament prophets As we see in verse 5, these prophets are New Testament prophets. If I misspoke, I want to correct that right now. Verse 5 is convincing that these prophets were actually not the Old Testament prophets, but people who were alive during the time of the apostles. He says so explicitly. So when you consider Ephesians 2.20, the gospel is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And three, five, there's a compelling case for what I think is cessationism. In other words, supernatural gifting of God by certain men to give new revelation, prophets and apostles, has been the foundation. The foundation is laid, and it no longer serves a purpose to gift people like that. I'm speaking of the ceasing of the apostles and prophets and the gifts of tongues, prophecy, and knowledge why tongues prophecy and knowledge those are three gifts in the list in 1 Corinthians 12 of spiritual gifts that are all about revelation when you get to chapter 13 as we'll see in just a moment paul says only three of the gifts the long list in chapter 12 only three of those are going to fade away they're going to cease only three gifts that cease are the gifts that have to do With revelation. Is that not interesting? The prophets here came in tandem with the apostles. Their purpose was the founding of the church. How could you tell who was real, who was not? Well, they were concerned in that early uh, generation that people would misunderstand false prophets and false apostles. Paul talks about there being false prophets, false teachers, false apostles in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 he says verse 12 the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles so how can you tell if you're a true apostle signs wonders and miracles there was supernatural phenomena that came along with your office chapter excuse me Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3 how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God testifying with them by signs and wonders and various miracles, same list, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Signs of a true apostle. And I think the prophets were just in keeping with this as well because they're used in tandem. Acts chapter 1, verse 22. Now this is interesting because they're, they're replacing Judas, right? So they go through this this interesting um, lot-casting exercise. But we find out something really interesting about a qualification you had to have to be a true apostle or a true prophet. Mostly a prophet here is what he's talking about. A, an apostle here is what he's talking about, sorry. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us, All the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. What's the point? The only people who are witnesses of the resurrection died in the first generation. The Spirit of God is using miraculous gifts in the apostles and in the prophets to signify their authenticity with the gospel. This was such a new notion. God used these supernatural accompaniments with these gifted men to show that the gospel had authenticity. This was a work of God. The New Testament revelation, God's mystery, was discovered through the prophets and apostles by revelation not by curiosity. They gave new revelation. That's what verse 3 says about God's new work in creating the church and using marriage in pointing to Jesus himself in the new administration of Christ being the Lord now and in the future over the universe and the cosmos. Now, over the course of my own ministry, I've become biblically convinced that the so-called charismatic gifts ceased to be given by the Holy Spirit with the last of the apostles and prophets in and around the first generation of the church. Really quick footnote. I have dear brothers and sisters, I mean dear beloved friends, who don't believe that, but who cherish the gospel, who are doing work for the kingdom. They're not heretics. I just think that the Scripture leads us to a different conclusion. One of my spiritual mentors for years has been one of, the, I think, the greatest theological minds alive today, and that's Thomas Schreiner, Dr. Schreiner. He's actually filled this pulpit before, spoke just a few years ago on a Sunday morning at our Expositor Seminary graduation. I want to commend to you his book, Spiritual Gifts, What They Are and Why They Matter." Spiritual gifts, what they are and why they matter. What I'm going to be saying over the, about the next five minutes is heavily plagiarized for him. I guess if I'm telling you that, it's not plagiarism, right? But I'm stealing from him because he's been so influential. I was writing things down and looked, looking at some, at some of his books, and I, I had trouble figuring out what I wrote and what, what, I, what I borrowed from him. So I just want to give him full credit that he's been very influential in framing up my thinking on this. I think the primary argument for cessation of the spiritual gifts that have to do with revelation, tongues, knowledge, and prophecy, is because God finished his word to us in the closing of the New Testament documents. They were the foundation of the apostles and prophets mentioned in chapter 2, verse 20. If you look back there for a moment... Paul writes that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What does this mean? Well, I think the best, most natural reading of of this is that God spoke through the apostles and through the prophets to communicate all that we need to know, all that we need to understand about salvation and living life as a Christian, sufficiently. All that teaching is now Finished and found in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 speaks of revelation and the progress and the finishing of it. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, those are Old Testament prophets, in many portions and in many ways. And what a fun study it is to see how God communicated his word in the Old Testament. Sometimes by dictation, sometimes from a mountain, sometimes from a cloud, sometimes through a donkey. Not making that up. Read Balaam. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, in whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. What that tells us is that in these final days, these last days, God has spoken, meaning the writer of the Hebrews understood that there was a closing to the canon, a closing to God's speaking, also through the apostles and the prophets Jude calls us to quote Jude 3 contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints It's finished the revelation of God I do want to quote Dr. Schreiner he says this quote to put it another way we don't have apostles like Paul and Peter and John anymore they gave us the authoritative teaching by which the church continues to live to this day and that is the only teaching we will need until Jesus returns. We know that new apostles won't appear since Paul specifically says that he was the last apostle in 1 Corinthians 15:8. And he does, he says, I'm the last one. When James the brother of John died, this is interesting in Acts chapter 12 verse 2, he wasn't replaced. Very interesting, when Judas went off the rails, they replaced Judas. James died, they didn't replace him. Apostles in the technical sense are restricted to those who have seen the risen Lord and have been commissioned by him. And no one since the apostolic times fits such criteria. The apostles were uniquely appointed for the early days of the church to establish orthodox doctrine and he says this there is no warrant then for saying that there are still apostles today indeed if anyone claims to be an apostle today we should be concerned for such a claim opens the door to false teaching and to abuse of authority one more statement by him if the gift of apostleship has ended then other gifts may have ceased as well since the foundation has been laid by the apostles and the prophets, Ephesians two twenty says. Schreiner says, I conclude from this point that the gift of prophecy has ended also, for the prophets identified here are not, are, are, excuse me, are the same sort mentioned elsewhere. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty eight, Ephesians 3.5, five, Ephesians four eleven. We'll come back to them in a, another sermon. The early churches didn't have the complete canon of Scripture for some time. And hence, an authoritative and infallible prophetic ministry was needed to lay the foundation for the church in those early days. End quote. I think that's really, really helpful. Now, the counter from some of our charismatic friends is that prophecy in the New Testament and prophecy today is different than Old Testament prophecy. Why would they say that? Well, Think this through because in the Old Testament, if you were a prophet and you were ever wrong, you were executed. And so there's an argument that some theologians would want us to believe that there is New Testament prophecy alive and operative today that's fallible. It, It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be complete, which is a way of saying that they're not sure if they're speaking for God or for them. I think, honestly, that those prophecies that modern-day prophets allude to aren't, are really only impressions that they're, they're getting. I mean, they may be divine impressions based on Scripture, but unless they're checked by and verified, verified by and identical to Scripture, it's frightening to say, thus says the Lord if the Lord has not thusly said Back to 1 Corinthians 13 for a minute. Again, there's a whole list of gifts in chapter 12. Only three are isolated from that list of gifts. Tongues, prophecy, and knowledge in chapter 13. And it said, these three will cease. Don't miss that. Big long list. Only three are called out. Only these three are said to cease. Now, I think we'll have a fuller study of tongues and knowledge another time. But for now... I think tongues, knowledge, and prophecy all had to do with God speaking, with God's revelation. Consequently, it seems consistent that if prophecy passed away with the apostles, then so did the other revelatory gifts. Why the foundation was laid, Ephesians 2.20. The New Testament was being written. Further, and I can't resist this, If you believe that tongues are operative today, Paul gave very stringent and very specific regulations for the speaking in tongues in chapter 14. Can can I just list a few of those for you? 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that tongues were known foreign languages. See also Acts 2, which they were known foreign languages everyone heard in their own language. And that the exercise of tongues was to be strictly regulated in this way. Chapter 14, verses 22 to 23. There must always be a gospel presented for unbelievers who are present. The tongue had to be the articulation of the gospel. Also, there must always be an unbelieving Jew present. Quoting Isaiah 28, 11, Isaiah 14, 21 says, I will use tongues to speak to this people. This people are Jews. It was a judgment also to the Jews that they would be hearing the gospel through a foreign tongue. Going back to Isaiah 28. Chapter 14, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians. It always must be in a public worship service. There's no such thing as tongues by yourself. Chapter 14 also says that there must never be more than three to speak in tongues, two or three. So not a whole bunch of people and not privately. Has to be isolated. One person says it and there always must be an interpreter of that language, chapter 14, verse 27. Oh, yeah, and in the context of speaking in tongues, it can never be a woman. It says a woman must not speak in the church. You know what the context of that is? Speaking in tongues in chapter 14. And also, it must be done with complete order. In other words, it doesn't surprise the pastor. That's the last chapter, last verse, fourteen forty. All to say, if that happened, I would say, wow, that really looks like biblical tongues. But I have never heard in my generation of those happening, and I don't know issues after the first generation where it did either. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 does say, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. Gifts of tongues, they will cease. Gifts of knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the Greek word is teleos, the completed thing comes, the partial will be done away. There's a contrast in verse 10. Whatever the perfect is has to do with something complete compared to something partial. Now, many people, there's a lot of good interpretations about what what that means. By the way, everyone who has a Bible is a cessationist. It's just a matter of when these cease, right? They will cease, but it wins when the perfect comes. So it comes down to when is the perfect? What is the perfect? Three great uh, theories on this or interpretations. could be the return of Christ in that passage. It talks about the return of Christ. We'll see Christ as He is. We'll know as we're known. It's a wonderful picture of His his, uh, coming. Another view is the closing of the canon of Scripture. Another is the maturity of the Corinthian church. I think all three of those have a a legitimate way to be applied in in this passage. No question. If it's the return of Christ, then Jesus hasn't returned yet, then these gifts might still be operative. But you have to ask, what are they for? They are to reveal God's word and God has finished revealing his word. I don't mind the idea that it's the closing of the canon because of verse 10. It says, when the partial is done away, and the full, the, the, the completed thing comes. It's a neuter in the Greek, the completed thing. That's what the perfect is. The, the thing finished, the completed thing. I, I, I'm okay with that being the completion of the Bible or the canon. But I also think there's credence to saying, it's when you're mature, hit the whole 12, 13, and 14 are basically a spiritual spanking to the Corinthians that they have been crazy about the gifts and immature about them. And when you're mature, you won't need these things. That's for another time. For now, 1 Corinthians 14 regulates these gifts so strictly that it's clear to me that they passed away. Secondly, we don't need them if they're revelatory. Let's go back to the very beginning. If God's word is sufficient, it must mean it's complete. If it is incomplete, it is definitionally not sufficient. They laid the foundation of the gospel by inscripturating these truths in New Testament documents. The whole point of this discussion is that the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament were revealing parts of God's word that had never been known before called mysteries. And once those were recorded, there was no need to continue to gift men to reveal those mysteries. Which leads us to the big reveal in verse 6. What are you talking about here in this mystery? We'll only scratch the surface of this because he's gonna dive into this more in the coming passage. To be specific, what are you talking about? What did the prophets and the apostles really tell us? To be specific, he says, since you asked, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Notice the word fellow. Fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, so what is this mystery? Well, you compare two twelve with 3-6, and you know. Chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, talking to the Gentiles, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Verse 6 of chapter 3. The Gentiles are now fellow heirs with the Jews, fellow members with Jewish believers, fellow partakers of the promise of the Messiah, that's Christ, Jesus, through the good news of the gospel with the Jews. So the mystery is this. Gentile believers in the gospel are equal with Jewish Christians in the church. Fellow partakers. And actually, I read it to you earlier. Chapter 4, first few verses, tells us how to accomplish that and what that means in our oneness and our solidarity with each other. New revelation, the New Testament. Can can you just pause to see that God, it tells us something about God. God wanted us to know certain things and he revealed them and scripturated them so that we would know them. What a God who doesn't leave us to speculation and guessing, but has told us everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us. Two simple takeaways. First of all, <laughs> I hope this causes you, Paul's words cause you to fortify your love and confidence in your Bibles. It fortifies your confidence in your Bibles as God's sufficient communication to you. When people, and they have, and I'm not trying to be mean or unkind, but they say, You know what? God told me, I, if I have my Bible, I like to do this. Would you write that down for me? I got some blank, blank pages at the back of my Bible. Would you, would you write that down for me? That's God's word. And, and, and obviously, I need to have that if that's God's word. Oh, weird. <laughs> We have the whole. We have the whole on our phone. We have multiple copies around. Even the fact that we don't, we have gone through the printing press revolution and we have books. Can you imagine before Gutenberg, you wanted a whole Bible? You had to carry around 66 scrolls. That, that's inconvenient at best. Praise God. But those to whom much... His given, say it with me, much is required. Second takeaway, treasure and protect the unity we have in our church because of Christ. I've kind of taken an aside on the revelatory aspect of this because we're going to come back in the next study to the unity we share. Just treasure it, love it, own it, promote it, protect it. And Paul's going to use almost all of chapter 4 to tell us exactly how to do that. Let me pray. Father, please give us understanding of your book, confidence in your revelation. Please, though, don't ever let us think that you've stopped speaking to us because you certainly Speak to us always and often through your word, through remembrances of it, through the way that your word has changed our thinking and mind by leading us, by impressing us with calls to obedience. Change us because of what we read and study in your word. Protect us from being Integrational, where we take worldly ideas and philosophies and integrate them into your word to come up with such a hybrid that we don't recognize the authority and sufficiency of what you've said. Lead us. Minister to us, teach us, and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.